0: Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 Peter 1.13 to 2.8. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk,
1: Let's look to the Lord in prayer uh, before we look to his word. Father, we give thanks and we rejoice that we have an imperishable, a life-giving word that you have proclaimed to us. That by your word, by the power of your spirit, we can come to know and to trust the work of Christ who's obeyed, who's died, who's been raised for us. We ask that you'd grant us humility before your word today. Uh, Give us ears to listen. We ask that you'd use your Holy Spirit to shape our hearts, that we might flee from our sin, from our conduct, which is in pursuit of ourselves and our own pleasure, but that we ask, Lord, that you would align our lives uh, to more and more what is appropriate for us as your children who've been ransomed at a great price, as those who have an eternal and an unshakable, imperishable hope. Grant us confidence in the certainty of your hope in Christ, confidence uh, to faithfully persevere and endure the many troubles of life that we face day after day, month after month. Help us no no longer to live um, with so much self-concern and self-interest, but help us rather... To live in genuine love for one another as we have confidence in Christ and help us to also live in genuine love for those around us. We're grateful to pray, knowing that you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, on January 1st, 2016, I realized that even though I had grown up in Iowa, Uh, About 15 years after leaving Iowa, I had been telling people all those years I was from Iowa, Uh, but on January 1st, 2016, I realized maybe I wasn't really an Iowan anymore. January 1st, 2016 was the day of the Rose Bowl football game uh, in Pasadena. I drove up uh, with a couple of my brothers and... We went to the game to cheer on our hometown team, uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes playing against Stanford, and, and we got crushed. Uh, but, but that wasn't the important part that made me disassociate myself from Iowa that day. Um, what happened was that morning, the day of the game at about 8 a.m., we went into the, uh, the tailgate section uh, before the game. There's a bunch of cars, hundreds and hundreds of cars parked in the grass, thousands of people standing around, sitting next to their cars, tailgating, um, doing all kinds of ornery things. And, um, you know, at this point, I was looking around realizing I wasn't dressed like them. Um, I knew it was gonna be cold that day. It was January 1st, so I wore long pants and a shirt. But Iowans coming to California in January thought it was gonna be warm. So they were wearing shorts and T-shirts and obnoxious fan gear. And, and I looked around and thought, maybe I'm a little different from them. Uh, at that time, I also had a big beard and a little bit of a tan, and um, it wasn't long. I was hanging out uh, next to the car while, while the brothers went to the restroom. Um, some police walked up to me and said, started asking me some questions and said, would you, would you come with us? And they wanted to know a lot about who I was. They asked about my name, and I said, well, my name's Adam Smith. And, and a, th- that wasn't super believable, I guess, at that point. Um, <clears throat> they they started asking me about my family's racial background. Uh, they asked me, oh, "Have you ever been to the Middle East? Uh, where Where are you from?" Well, I'm I live in California, but I'm from Iowa. And, and they said, "But where are your Where are your parents from?" And and I I said, "Well, they were from Kansas." And and what happened, I later learned the police detained me for about forty-five minutes, almost an hour, questioning me. Uh, what happened was some of the Iowa football fans, people that I had associated myself with, my own people, said this person looks like a Middle Easterner and looks like a terrorist. He's not drinking at eight AM in the morning and we're suspicious. And so along the way of questioning, the police started asking me, of course, all those racial things, uh, but then they started asking me um, about my religious beliefs. And, and I said, well, I'm, I'm Christian, and I thought that would alleviate their suspicions that I'm not a terrorist. But that made it worse. The fact that I was a Christian meant that I was religious, and it made me even more suspicious to them, to the police interrogating me. And um, this went on and on for, for about an hour. But, but I say all that, and I tell you that story. Um, I learned a lot of things that day, and it, it, it brought a lot of feelings. Um, first, I got a firsthand glimpse of what it can be like to be a minority here in our culture. Um, but more, more related to our text for today and our sermon um, is that um, I realized that, in a, in a sense, I felt rejected by my own people. <laughs> I felt rejected by those from where I am from, um, and I felt like I was no longer one of them. And then I also realized that that being a Christian ended up bringing more suspicion upon me. Um, it, it didn't alleviate the concern that I was a terrorist, uh, and that really surprised me. Uh, so as we... As we now start looking to Paul's letter, um, and keeping keeping those points in mind, um, we're going to take notice of how Paul is speaking to these Gentile ch- churches in Turkey. So he's he's speaking. He's writing. Uh, um, P- Peter, I did I say Peter? Did I say Paul? Peter is writing to Gentiles in Turkey who are living in their own Gentile culture um, and telling them. He says, "You are exiles and foreigners, even in the midst of your own cities." and cultures. Uh, See, these Gentile believers uh, in the church were no longer participating in various cultural practices and traditions and superstitions, uh, the idolatry, and and so they'd been suspicious to those around them. Um, Peter indicates that he knows that, and he's heard how the culture around them has has begun to despise them uh, and disdain them for now being different, even though they used to be the same. Like a well-behaved school kid who's taunted and teased for doing the right thing, resisting the temptations of peer pressure, uh, these believers have likewise found themselves on the receiving end. Um, The receiving end of mistrust and ridicule from those around them, those in their own cultures, their own people, perhaps even their own families. And so Peter's writing them to urge them to persevere in faith, to persevere in holy living and in love in the face of temptations, and in the midst of being slandered. And so we're going to look at today's passage, and it was a long passage today, I know that, um, and try to notice and simplify, and consider three things that Peter is saying about uh, these Gentile Christians and about us. First, um, that we too have become foreigners in our own culture. So first, that we're foreigners. Second that we're a family, and third, that we're we're to be a welcoming family. First, Peter says that we're foreigners. Several times uh, throughout this book, he identifies them as as exiles or foreigners, saying um, in the first verse of the letter that you're elect exiles. Um, In the passage we read, he says, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. And then later on, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And this is striking. To them, they're they're Gentiles living in their own culture. But he's calling them foreigners. They're foreigners in a familiar land. And it's difficult to be a foreigner and to be caught between two cultures. Uh, Probably some of us at different times have have lived in another country, Uh, maybe even your parents or, or your grandparents were from a different country, and so you felt this tension of living between two cultures with, with two different value systems, wanting to be accepted in the culture that you're in, at the same time having this background of, of additional values and characteristics and expectations from a culture that's far away. Um, and so something something very similar is going on with these Gentiles uh, in modern which we know are in, we're in this area of modern Turkey, as they face persecution. But it's not, uh, we're not led to believe that it's a persecution that's, that's like they're being arrested or they're being punished by the law. There's not historical evidence that, that shows us that, that those were the laws in place. The persecution that they faced was, was more personal and more local. What they faced was that people had grown suspicious of them. And so Peter indicates here and elsewhere in the letter that as they experienced being mistreated, um, as they were alienated from their neighbors and even possibly their families, um, whom they had known and interacted with for years, they are now different. And in some ways, too, we also our foreigners and exiles in our own culture. Uh, we're on the margins of our society. You heard in my story that being a Christian brought suspicion on me as a potential terrorist. It didn't alleviate concerns. Um, and you don't have to look far in television or movies or, or popular culture to see some of the stigmas and the mistrust that our culture has uh, for, for Christians. Or for the church. Christian values, uh, of course, we can, we can probably say are, are, are less publicly held and less prominent um, publicly than in previous generations, maybe even 20 years ago. And perhaps you've experienced this for yourself in your workplace or in your schools um, in different ways as, as your values and your beliefs are different from those around you. I know, especially for kids and for young people, this is difficult. We all want to feel welcome. We all want to feel accepted by those around us. And it's not fun to feel like we're different or that people are suspicious of us or or that we're strange. But Peter's saying that this is part of our life as believers. And he's making a connection with us. So that even now as we struggle, we're exiles waiting for Jesus to return. Like Israel was exiled waiting for the promised land. But his point is not just to say, isn't it cool that, that you're kind of exiles like Israel was exiles. That's, that's not his point. His point is saying... that we ought to be confident. He's writing to urge us that we would be determined and confident not to be be conformed to the world, not to give in, and to pursue those former passions of our lives, but, but rather to be conformed to God and to his holiness and to his ways. He's urging us to fear God in this time of exile. So that we as believers will be aligned to Christ, aligned to the cornerstone, that same stone that the builders rejected. He was rejected to the point of death. And so we can expect to be rejected in some ways as we align ourselves to Him. But Peter's saying you can persevere, you can be confident even when things are difficult. You have been made God's children, he says. You have an imperishable and a certain inheritance being God's children. And he's telling us, telling us that it's worth persevering. And so Peter quotes God's promise in Isaiah 28 saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so As Peter urges us to be confident and determined to persevere and not to be conformed to the world, Peter is clear that the foundation for our perseverance, for our commitment to godly conduct, is that God has made us part of his family. If you remember in Israel, when when they've been wandering, there's moments where they say, Some of them say, maybe we should go back to Egypt. And as we read that, we see how how crazy that sounds, that why would you go back to slavery and bondage? God has delivered you. Certainly he'll deliver you again. And that's the same kind of thing that Peter's saying to us, that, that for those of you who believe in Christ, he's delivered you. He'll carry you through. And he'll bring about deliverance when Christ returns. We ought not to turn back. To those former ways. Peter says we're a family. Namely that we're now God's family. And he repeatedly uses this imagery of family. um, To describe our relationship with God as well as with each other. He says. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says if you call on him as father. Conduct yourselves with fear during your exile. having been ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers. So that's another reference to our former family. And then he says, tells us that brotherly love is a purpose for our faith. He talks about an inheritance that comes, an imperishable inheritance for those who are the children of God. All this is family language. And this is grace that's being proclaimed to us. This is the gospel of Christ. That for those of you who believe in Jesus, you've been adopted. You've, made, you've been made part of God's family. And that the word of the Lord stands forever as the grounds of your salvation. The blood of Jesus as the ransom of your sins is an imperishable foundation for your salvation. It will not be shaken. God's word is compared to the flower that fades. And we've just had Valentine's Day. And, and maybe some of you, like me, have a hard time buying flowers, <laughs> knowing that they're just going to die. And so, uh, actually, I, I, over the years, I've learned to care more about how long I think the flowers are going to last than, than what they look like. And, and maybe that's... Um, I need to process that a little bit and just try to serve my wife better rather than rather than focus on, on that fixation. But but we know that the flower fades, but the word of the Lord is imperishable. Even gold or silver can be lost and perish. But the hope and that the salvation that we have in Christ is certain and it's imperishable. And it's very clear from these statements that Peter's not saying that we have to obey in order to become part of God's family. But rather, we obey and we conform because, because we've been adopted and we've been made a part of this family. And it's fitting. And so, uh, so Peter says, uh, we conform because we're now children. We're to be holy in our conduct because the the Lord who called us is holy. We're to conduct ourselves with fear, with fear of the Lord during our exile, since we call him Father, and knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We've been saved by faith alone. It's not through these works that we're saved. But it's through faith. And it's because of your faith in Christ that you've received a salvation. It's through your faith in Christ that you've received a salvation. And therefore, you're called to this godly conduct, being a part of this family. And you're also given the confidence, being part of an unshakable family, to no longer live for ourselves and for our own passions. We no longer need and want to self-medicate ourselves, our pain and our troubles, with, with indulgences and pleasures, with expressions of success and wealth and appearance, which puff us up and make us feel better for a moment, but which fade away like the flowers. But the inheritance that we have is a foundation, an unshakable foundation for hope, in a Christ whose blood served as a ransom for your sins. And so Peter goes on and he continues this conversation about family. Uh, He instructs us to love one another now in brotherly love since we've been born again. Since you've received what's imperishable, you're now freed from the burden of operating out of self-concern and self-interest. Without that burden and that self-pursuit, you're now freed to live in love for one another. The call to love is not just another obligation heaped upon us, but it's a grace. It's a grace that in our exile, God doesn't just leave us waiting and wanting as we suffer and as we struggle, as, as, as those around us, our former family, find us now to be foreigners. But here we find in the church, in our family as God's people, that we have a community of people who love and care for us in these times of suffering, in these times of difficulty, and and even in temptation and sin. In 2016, I moved to the Philippines. Uh, I was a foreigner. I didn't know anyone. I left my fiancé behind, and I was longing for home every day. (laughs) Um, but, but soon after arriving, just within weeks, I met this Filipino family that adopted me. And they would invite me for dinner on a Tuesday night. They would invite me for Bible study. They would drive me to church. They would take me to play soccer or even just bring me over to play with their kids or, or if they needed help working on something. They were, they were a home and a family for me while I was a foreigner. And actually, some of you have met them. Um, uh, if you remember, Gita uh, was a young lady that played music for us several times in the last year. And, and her and her family, back when she was a little girl, uh, they cared for me. And they were my family in the Philippines. And, and it, it shows, it, it showed me how important it is to have this family when we're foreigners. People that love us, who look out for us, who care about our best interests, and who accept us. And that's the church for us as foreigners. It's a place full of people with unconditional love for us who've been redeemed by the same blood and the same mercy of Christ. It's a place where we find help, in a place of reconciliation. And of course, that's good news to us. In, in a sense, we all want church to be that for us. We all want the church to accept us, right? And, and, and to be our place of refuge, to be a place that loves us and takes care of us. And that's, that's good and right. But we also have to flip the coin a little bit and, and realize that, that the, the church needs us too. Each of us are a part of that. And we ought not to neglect our own place to love and care for one another. This church, uh, I pray, will be a loving home for those of us struggling with sin and mourning, those of us undergoing all kinds of hardships. Uh, It ought to be a loving and welcoming place for those around us who aren't a part of our community as well. We ought to be welcoming no matter what someone's color or culture or language what their social status uh, what their quirkiness looks like what their education level is or, or what age group they fall in and this home that God gives us exemplifies grace heaped upon grace upon grace we've been saved we've been given a home And even now, the Holy Spirit is changing our hearts from these futile, destructive, selfish, and sinless ways to align us with God and with his ways. So while we've become foreigners here in our own culture and maybe even in your own families, God gives you the church as a place. He gives you the church to support you as you wait for Christ to return and as you wait for that eternal hope. And then on the flip side, while he calls us to love, he also, Peter, that is, Peter tells us, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Hypocrisy, deceit, malice, envy, and slander. All of these are anti-love. These are the things we put behind us. And I think we, we can take notice, and this isn't a criticism, this isn't an accusation, but we can take notice as a church, but... ...as to how can God disrupt this family? He can disrupt our peace and our love. I'm I'm sorry, how can Satan disrupt this family? He can disrupt our peace, our love, and our trust of one another... ...through division, keeping us at odds with one another... ...focusing on our own distinctives and critiquing one another... ...as opposed to the common faith, the common Savior... ...the common mission, and the common love that we have. And so we ought to be on guard... Putting those things away, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander, they're anti-love. And so I'll just ask you rhetorically, do your kids know, those of you who have kids, do your kids know what you admire about your church family and your pastors? Or is it more likely that they've heard your complaints and your critiques in the car or or? at the dinner table. Um, And I'm I'm not fishing for compliments. Uh, And I'm not suggesting that our pastors in our church are beyond critique at all. But I'm just asking this as a rhetorical question so that we can consider if this is how we think and talk, if this is how we think and talk about one another, how does this affect our witness of Christ to our children? How does it affect their conception of our church family? And how does it shape our own hearts if we're not on guard? How does it affect our testimony to a watching world? And so we'll move on and and just consider for a couple brief moments that Peter calls us to be a, a welcoming family. Like Peter's audience, uh, we ought to respond to the rejection that we find from our culture. Not with hostility. Not with withdrawal and hiding and isolating ourselves. But as Peter says, with good works. And if we keep reading it, and, and as we keep studying First Peter this year, you'll see. Um, in, the, in the very next passage, Peter says, as a people together, we're proclaiming the excellencies of God. He says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, when they see your conduct your good, and your good deeds, they will glorify God. And so, we're called to be a loving community not just to protect ourselves from the outside and to isolate ourselves and, and to serve one another, which, which we are to serve one another, but also to welcome those who are outside we are to evidence that the gospel is not just empty words, but that it's, it's powerful. Love, uh, as Peter describes it, love is not just a byproduct of our being saved. It's not just something that happens, but it's one of the purposes God has for our salvation is that love would reign, that it would be manifest in us. It's part of our witness to Christ. And it shows forth his goodness. And this this church, the church around the world, is not just called to be a loving community as a missionary strategy. It is is part of our witness to the world. But we're not just faking love. We're not just serving others as part of a marketing scheme and strategy to, to get other people in. It's not bait and switch. But it's genuine. It's a genuine love from a God who genuinely loves us as well. We ought to be characterized with, by love and forgiveness and encouragement as we declare God's truth. Our goal is not just to offer snacks and entertainments and events that attract people, but what we do, we do this in order to embody love, care, kindness and goodness and we ought to keep considering more and more ways that we can embody these things and so therefore if if being a community of love and goodness is part of god's strategy for our reaching the world with his truth with the gospel of christ and it's part of our strategy for welcoming others into our family we can't just say it We can't just have it as a mission statement for our church. We can't just write it down on our websites or memorize it in our heads and put it on our t-shirts. We have to embody it. And that's what Peter's calling us to do. And he's encouraging us and giving us the confidence and the reasons to do that. Because we have a secure hope. We have an imperishable salvation that's found in Christ. And so we can. We can. Thankfully, as we seek to do this and as we struggle through the sin that remains in us, as we seek to try to love others, we can have certainty and we can have confidence that God is our Father, that he forgives us when we fail, that Christ is our Savior, and that the salvation that he has for us, for one another, is true. And so I think at first glance, we can look at a big, long passage like this that, that has familiar elements to us and say, I get it. I get it. Hope in Christ. Love God. Obey God. Love other people. Like, in some ways, that sounds so basic, but we're all still struggling through those things. And if we trivialize it, we miss Peter's profoundly pastoral point to us. We miss his sympathy for the reality of the difficulties and the suffering that we're all going through, the troubles that you all face. Because what is it that's going to comfort you? What is it that's going to see you through these troubles? Peter does not say, man up, be tough, and endure. (laughs) But he says, be prepared. Prepare yourselves for this, and be willing and be ready to walk through it knowing that the promises of God and his unshakable word, that they've come. These promises are coming for all who believe, for you have been forgiven and you will be raised with Christ in his return. And that the Holy Spirit is given to strengthen you even now, to produce fruit, to bring you comfort while you're a foreigner in this strange land. And that you have a gift, a gift of a a believing community to love and care for you. A community that you can participate in to also love and care for those around us even now. And so as Peter urges, I'll urge you all to, brothers and sisters, prepare your minds and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your exceeding goodness to us that that while we were still sinners, Christ died. We thank you that that you've allowed us to call you Father with confidence, not having to wonder whether or not you are ours and we are yours, but, but knowing that Christ has paid the full ransom for our sin and that you welcome us merely by faith. For those of us who are considering faith in Christ, for those of us here struggling through placing our faith in Christ and, and walking in faith day by day, Father, give us strength in this. Open our eyes to see your truth. Give us boldness and confidence, knowing that these things are true and that, that they're evident as we look at the world around us and see the, the difference of the people here in this room who've been changed as as we look at our own hearts seeing that, that we've been changed from those former passions and now unto faith and unto love that we did not have before we thank you for the church that serves as a home and a refuge for us we thank you for redemption for its members for its leaders and we pray for them that you'd sustain all of us and grow us together in peace and love and unity we ask that you'd forgive us for our many sins. Help us, Lord, to conform to your ways more and more. And we pray for those among us undergoing especially difficult hardships in these days. Grant them your loving hand <laughs> and your comfort on their hearts. Bring alongside them brothers and sisters to care for them. Help them, Lord, to see jesus and his love for them grant us your holy spirit we ask that we might obey and love more and more as you conquer sin and evil even in these days and we look forward to the day when christ returns and we thank you that we know he's returning amen